a lot of the work of parenting is just getting in the trench and doing it. And feeling like you're not doing it quite right and doing it anyhow. And feeling like you messed up and keep doing it. And feeling like you're spun out and you don't know what you're supposed to do and keep moving forward and like not going away. It's like, you know, just like your marriage. Like sometimes marriage is the best thing on earth and sometimes it's really hard. And you've got to just keep going. And that's the, that's the stuff. The real stuff is when it's not easy. The real stuff is when it's not fun. The real stuff is when you don't know what to do. from. Father, pray that you would bless uh, Brother Matthew as he shares with us tonight. Bless him for being here. God, we're excited to hear from you through him this evening. Give him words to to say um, that will, Lord, lead us to your path. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> I think... Um, by way of introduction, for those that don't know me well, <coughs> uh, we have 12 children. Um, I don't mean that as credentials, but, but it is part of why I'm here, right? Uh, if I had no children, you probably wouldn't ask me to come and speak on raising children. Um, we, Eric and I were, were married before we were Christians by a slight bit. We... We got married in 1998 after living on the streets, and um, and parenting has parenting has been mixed into what it meant to be Christians for us. Like when we got married, one of the first desires that Erica had was to have a baby, and that was a we connected that with being Christians. We didn't have that desire. I'm not saying that only Christians want children. I'm just saying for us our desire to have a family coincided with our desire to be Christians. And, and, and for us, um, when we, as we started our new life in, in the kingdom, I think we've always at least thought of ourselves as, as kind of radicals, as wanting to be all in and wanting to be like radical in the, in the definition of the word means emanating from the center. We've always wanted to be as close to the center of Jesus as we could. And for, for us, what that meant was like giving up everything. Like we wanted to be all in with everything. And, and, and because having a family was a part of that original experience of us becoming Christians, um, 
having children, having a large family, raising our children, you know, raising them around the church and ministry has, has been a lifelong passion and obsession for us, for both Eric and I. And, you know, in the life, living as a self-described radical, that's been a lot of fluctuations over the years. Like, there's been a lot of ups and downs with that journey, and a lot of, like, assessment, reassessment. I, I think that a lot of times people think if you have 12 children, that it must be easy for you to have children. It's, it's just not the case. Erica spent probably, I mean, I haven't counted up, but many, 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 many months in the hospital. Um, we've wept and prayed our children through. We've We've sat in NICUs, we've fought with doctors, we've, we've been all over the map. We've done every kind of birth experience. Like I've, I've cut children's umbilical cords with a sterilized pocket knife. We've been in extremely advanced medical scenarios. We've been all over the gamut. And one thing I think that God has tried to teach me over the years is that the... What it means to be a Christian is to, is, is to adapt. And what I mean by that is like when you read the gospel narrative, when you read the story of Jesus and how he's moving and being in the world, he's always a moving target. And it's one of the things that's most captivating to me about him, especially the way he speaks, is that as many times as I read the gospel narrative, every time... Like, if I, if, I, if I show up to the text without expectation, without, like, trying to memorize verses, like, if I pretend that I'm unaware and pretend and try to put on the air of someone who's reading this for the first time, he never talks like I expect him to. He's always bobbing and weaving. He's all over the place. Every time I expect him to be harsh, he's kind. Every time I expect him to be kind, he's harsh. Every time I expect him to receive people, he's pushing them away. Every time I expect him to push people away, he's pulling them in. Like, he's always where I don't expect him to be. I think there's something about who he is and how he's the Logos that wants to defy our convention. It wants to challenge our our biases and our expectations and be more than we imagined he could be. Uh, you know, pick any place in the gospel narrative to see that. Like, how, well, what, good master, what my student entered the kingdom of heaven? You know what to do. Do that stuff. And that's not what I expect him to say. I expect him to tell him how to get into heaven. Like, that's what he's there for. I'm come, I might know the Father. And if you know the Father, you know me. Like, something like that is what I expect. But he says, you know what to do. That's not what I expect. And everything he does is that way. I've had so many experiences. You know, we, we also, we spent a time fostering children for a while. And, and what, what scares me about God, what pr produces a healthy fear in me, is that even when I've understood him correctly, I've still misunderstood him. Even when I feel like, in, in, in times of fasting and prayer and desperation, I've gotten alone with God and I've heard from Him. I did actually hear from Him, but I mistook what He meant. That's happened several times in my life. Let me tell you a quick story. There was, a, there was two boys that we took in as foster parents. We went from having three children to six children. Erica was pregnant with Hosanna and to the end of her pregnancy, Right when Hosanna was born, we also took in two foster boys that were, had a lot of severe issues. 
And uh, so we went from three to six. And <clears throat> when that when that case file came to us, <coughs> I immediately said that we work for a nonprofit agency, not directly with the state of Oregon. And when when that case file came to us, I was like, no, we just had a baby. Like I can't I can't do this right now. You'll have to find somebody else. And like we don't have anybody else. Please, would you just take a look at it? And then you know, if I looked at it, I would say yes because who has beds in their house and a child needs to sleep there? And says no. So that's what happened. Well, it wasn't just like that. I took that file and we read it, and they were boys that we had had a little bit of experience with. And I prayed. I I I, I made a serious matter of prayer, and we fasted and we sought God. And I felt like God said very clearly to me, take the boys. Like that was what I received from the Lord. So I was like, okay, I'll take the boys. So we take the boys, we have them for some time. There's a lot of behavior issues that happen, a lot of difficult, they just needed more than we could give them. And and things became difficult and bordering on dangerous. And the, the agency we were working for said, we need to, we, we have to find somewhere else for these, these children to be. And I said, no, you can't take them. And they said, well, we're not, we're kind of not asking. We're telling you, like, I don't feel responsible. I'm worried that your children could be hurt. And if that happens, like, I don't feel right about the situation. I don't think they should be there. And I was going to have to fight for these children. And I'm fighting, and it's also creating a lot of difficulties between me and my wife because she's scared. She's scared about her other children. She doesn't know what to do. And I am too. But I'm going off of take the boys. It's what God told me, and it's what I told Erica. God told me take the boys and taking the boys. That's that's the last marching orders I have. That's what I'm doing. And it was creating friction everywhere. And I was going to have to start fighting to keep these children in my house if I wanted to keep them. And going against people's wishes, and it's going to be a bad situation. And so Erica and I argued about it one night. And she said, okay, listen, will you at least just go pray? I was like, I don't need to pray. I already heard. She's like, go pray and, t- and think about it. So, okay, so I left. I went up, spent all night up in the church house, and I prayed and I prayed. For me, the problem was <clears throat> these children had reactive attachment disorder. And I don't, I don't know if you know much about that, but it causes children, especially who have been traumatized or abused, especially if they've been in a lot of placements, they're very clingy to people that they first meet. And anybody that, that develops a sense of connection or, or closeness, they push away with behavior, with anger, with violence, all kinds of things. Because they've been hurt by people close to them, so they push people close away and they draw near to people who are far. It's a really, it's a really horrible thing to watch. And it's, it, it breaks people. It's, it's terrible. It's a terrible, terrible thing. And, and I knew that this was an issue in these boys' life. And I knew that the moment that I say, okay, put them somewhere else, I become another number in their life that's contributed to their pain and not their health. And I'm like, I didn't get involved with this for that. I didn't get involved to hurt them. I got involved to help. So I'm going to help. And I went up and I spent that time alone with God again. And I'm not, I'm, I don't mean to be talking about how we hear from God, that's a different matter altogether. 
But I prayed and I got alone with God in that time in that space and I just was broken and I said, God, you told me to take these boys. Like, what am I supposed to do? And the Lord was very merciful to me and he said, I did tell you to take them and now I'm telling you to let them go. Like, you have to let me be in control. And I was so obstinate and so stuck on what I had genuinely heard from God that I couldn't hear him say anything else. And, and so I've had these kinds of experiences in a lot of different ways. You know, we've, we, when, we were, when we were kids and when we were starting a family, we said, hey, we've given God everything. We're going to give him our womb too. We're not going to plan a family. We're going to have the family God plans for us. And I'm, th- I'm thinking when I'm 20-something years old, that's done in, like I left that there. I just, we just do what, whatever happens till then. And it's not that way. Every time we're in the hospital, every time I'm, I'm watching my wife suffer, I'm watching my children suffer because she's in the hospital again. How are we supposed to do this with our children? All that stuff, every time I have to go back and I have to say. And I hope what's happened in my life from that is that God's trained me to listen and to be responsive and flexible and move with him instead of thinking because I always do this I always think like wherever I'm at that's where I'm supposed to be and God doesn't work like with that in my life he wants me to walk with him he wants me to go here and then go there and move and be and and life moves life is not static it doesn't stay and this is one of the main points that I want to make t- tonight is that Family is that too. This is something that you have to embrace as a family, is that life moves. It does not stay in a place. I was talking about that tonight. You know, this is, I'm jumping way ahead in my notes, but we were talking tonight, like, every single child that's born into a home is born into an entirely different home than its brothers and sisters. My first child, Hannah, was born to a different family than Chloe, and Elijah was born into a different family than her, and on and on down it goes. My family has changed radically and dynamically every time a child has been born in our home. None of them have the same family. I'm not the same man. Their mother's not the same woman. There's different people around. We're in different places. We're doing different things. There's time that's gone on. Now all these events have happened in the world. We're different people because of it. None of this is supposed to be static. It's supposed to be dynamic. It's supposed to be strong and flexible and movable. That's, that's how we want to be as parents. We want to have the capacity and ability to move and flex, to meet the needs of our children, to meet the needs of our community, to meet the needs of the people around us, to meet the needs of the kingdom, to meet the needs of our ministry. That ability to move and flex and be in all those places where God's leading us, that's the goal. Not to write out, you know, we're going to do X, Y, and Z and always do X, Y, and Z and never do anything but X, Y, and Z and that's how we're going to raise Godly children for the rest of our days. Yeah. So that's where I'm coming from. Let me say this also. People are rightly, I myself, rightly reluctant to speak on child training. <laughs> I've, I've resisted the urge many times because it's pretty, it's pretty bold to have, for me to have a suckling baby back at my house and come out here and tell you all how to raise children. <laughs> It's kind of audacious. 
It's audacious for a few reasons um, that I think we should be honest about. You know, we, we hate hypocrisy, as we should. Like, we don't like people saying one thing and doing another. And you realize, if you're going to talk about raising children and how to do it right, that you're presenting yourself as some kind of authority. And that feels really, really scary to do. I, I don't see myself as an authority in family raising and, and parenting. I, I don't consider myself an expert. I, I have chalked up my 10,000 hours, I'm sure. But I, I, I... Matt also asked me today, like, do you still feel <coughs> like you don't know what you're doing? And the answer is yes. I, I, um, I'll talk about this a little more later, but because of that dynamic nature of family, I, I, you, you, there's, there's just not a way to figure it out so that you always know what to do. And I, I think that that doesn't have to be scary or intimidating. In fact, uh, it's less scary and intimidating to me than it used to be. Like I used to think about that and think, oh no, well, what am I going to do when I don't know what to do? And and I think what God wants us to do is he wants to use those places to make us better people. And, and it's part of the growth process. It's part of our discipling under the tutelage of our Lord and Master to go through experiences where we don't know what to do, to find recourse in the Holy Spirit, to find wisdom in God and the Scriptures, to find support and counsel in our communities, and to become better people. That process... I don't want, I, I'm at the place in my life where I don't want to short circuit that process anymore. It's not fun. I don't like not knowing what to do. I don't like feeling stretched to the limit and not sure how things are going to come out. But that process of growing as a person, as a father, as a husband, and, and as a child of God is some of the best stuff in my life. And, and I see my children now as an avenue and an opportunity when I don't know what to do to learn from God. So it doesn't have to be scary. Another reason that we should carry a little bit of humility and trepidation when we talk about these things is because the, as much as we wish it was different, the scriptures just are not a manual on how to raise children. In fact, you know, there's open debates in the Christian world about how we should even use the scant texts that we have about raising children. How, how much of those things, particularly in the Proverbs, are a part of an old world that we're not connected to anymore? I mean, when it talks about beating your children and the blueness of the wound and these things, like, are we supposed to be doing that? Like, what, what are we supposed to derive out of the scriptures? Let's take a for instance. This is an Old Testament, this is New Testament. You know, 1 Corinthians 7, it says, if he keeps his virgin, he does not sin. Well, what is that talking about? Like, apparently, what's happening in the in First Corinthians is that this is kind of some church history stuff added on. But there's these orders of virgins and widows. It was a prestigious place, and so people, Christian men in the church, had families, and they would keep their daughters unmarried so that they could be part of this order of virgins and widows in the church. It was an esteemed place of honor. Those people, were, those those women, were cared for by the church, and they had obligations to you know, do whatever ministry and services that the church need. And some people were choosing for their daughters, for them not to get married, but to join these orders in the church. And Paul's saying, if you do that, it's not sin. Well, I don't, that's not really super practical for a lot of us. Like, 
I don't, I don't know. Maybe you guys are a little ahead of the game than we are, but I, I don't know if you have an order of virgins and widows here. We haven't developed one yet in, in Boston, but that's just not a super pressing concern. And that text just doesn't connect with what a lot of us are doing with our teenage daughters and whether or not they should get married. So we need to understand these things where they're coming from and put them in the proper categories. And that's a big task to do. And what we're left with, no matter how we weigh those matters, is that there just isn't a do this and then do that and then do that. And so to come and speak on it from presenting an authoritative perspective is a little bit of a daunting task. Like we're making some assumptions, we're, we're saying things that aren't directly from the scriptures, and we need to be careful when we do that. So I want to just acknowledge that right up front. That being said, there is some, there, there are some things that we can derive from those texts, especially in the wisdom literature. Uh, there are some things to understand, however, however you want to apply them, how God's talking about instructing young people, bringing up children, raising them, and the importance of being shepherding over their life, and the importance of disciplining them, and the importance of training them. Those things, I think, are universal. I think they apply as much today, no matter how you are making application to those things, those perspectives are valuable, and we should lean into them and learn what we can. I want to start with a text in, in Deuteronomy 6, and this is kind of the heart of what I want to speak to you about this weekend, and I hope that you already know this passage. It's a very famous passage on family. You can turn there with me to Deuteronomy 6, and maybe we'll look at this a few times this weekend yet. It says, um, <clears throat> there's a lot we can say about this passage, but I don't want to stop there. Let's just read it. It says, Now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments, in verse 1, which the Lord your God commanded to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you go to possess it. That thou mightest fear the Lord thy God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee, thou and thy son, and thy son's son, all the days of thy life, and thy days may be prolonged. So this is a multi-generational command. To, to Israel. Hear therefore, in verse 3, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that you may increase mightily, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee, in the land that filleth with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord. This is the Shema. <coughs> and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. If you don't know, that's a very famous, like, Every Jewish family cites the Shema. It's, a, it's, it's like one of these repetitions that gets cited over and over again in Jewish homes still today. In verse 6, And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, that Shema. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And thou shalt teach them, how? Diligently. <coughs> teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Now these are mirisms. That's a literary term. It means, it's like a, a, a current mirism would be from A to Z. A to Z doesn't mean A and Z. It means from A to Z and everything in between. Uh, I'll remove your sins as far as the east is from the west. From the rising of the sun to the going down of the sand. You know that song? From the rising of the sun to the going down the that, that doesn't mean the place where it rises. It means everything in between. That's a mirrorism. This is a mirrorism. It means all your stuff that you do. 
when you sit, when you go, when you lay down, when you get up, in your life, teach your children diligently these things, that I, the Lord your God, am one God, and you should love me with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is what he wants. This is what he puts in front of Israel to keep them on track. <coughs> and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand. That means you see it when you do things. And they shall be as frontlets between thy eyes. You can't look anywhere without seeing it. And thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. It's literally written onto your house because this is about your house. This is about your home. This is about who you are as a people. That kind of, that kind of all-encompassing-ness of, of raising children, of being the people of God, of communicating who God is to our little ones and raising them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, that's supposed to be something that occupies us. The point, I think, to this passage is that he wants them to make this so much a part of their life that it happens accidentally. It happens all the time. It happens when you walk in your door. It happens when you go out to the gate. It happens when you do things. It happens when you go out. It happens when you come in. That, that what we need to cultivate, what I really want out of my home and what I want for your home is a cultivated heart that makes the things of God a part of our life. It's not something that we do. It's something that we are. We are God's people. And it permeates into all the stuff that we do, where we go, what we see, what we talk about. <coughs> Excuse me. It's the heart of the matter. It's a constant occupation. And it's our job. It's our job to explain these things to, your, to our children. It's our job to teach them diligently, to invest the time and energy and effort and what this really, what, the way that I engage with this text is that I feel like God's giving us a charge here that we're supposed to show our children the world. Like, it's, like, like, um, like a narrator in a movie, you know, he's explaining what's happening when, when it doesn't get explained. Like, they're to connect all the dots and make the story flow. That's who you are to your children. You're the narrator of the world of your children. You're the narrator that explains what they're seeing and why they're seeing it and what it means and how it's significant. You're there, and this is how this is these are my favorite times as a parent. Is like when you see something, you're like, Do you see that? Here's what that is. This is what that means. This is why that happens. Let me explain to you what that is. I love this. I love doing this with my children. And and when you start to cultivate it, when you start to cultivate it, they, they then you pick up on like when these little questions and dumb little stuff, you know, like children's minds. Let's talk about this for a minute. <clears throat> children's minds, I heard it explained this way, and I think it's brilliant. Children's minds are like a lantern. They light up everything in the room. That's how their intellect works. They have so many neural connections in their brain. Everything's connected to everything. And their intelligence, the way they see things, is like a lantern. And a lantern lights up everything in the room. This is why children are so easily distracted. Their attention is on everything in the room. The light, the sound, the feeling, the, the toy on the floor, the feel of the carpet. They're, they're sensing everything. It's all coming in. It's all being processed. And that's an amazing asset 
that God has given children neurologically, that their brains work that way. It can be frustrating when you're trying to get them to do something, but it's really a genius design by God that their, their minds work that way. It's how they learn stuff. It's how they have, they have just so much uh, capacity, you know, because they see it all. They, they experience it all. And we don't, you, you know, that stuff gets, those neural connections get severed off as you grow. And the same person was explaining, like, an adult intelligence is more like a flashlight beam. It has the capacity to focus, to look at a particular thing. You have to go through that stage to get to this stage. But, but there's differences there. And so as what, what, I, what, what the ideal is, right, is like their little lanterns come on in the room, and they're like, what's that thing over there? And your flashlight zooms in on that, and you're like, let me tell you what it is. I had to, <clears throat> I remember how it came up. Uh, I was taking Cephas to an appointment the other day, and <clears throat> I don't know if it was something that came on the news and the radio, something about a judge. I don't remember how it came up, but he said, what's a judge? How is a judge? And what I knew is that we have been taught, we, he, we talk about, you know, non-resistance and police and all these things. And so I, what I inferred from his question was that he's trying to figure out how does this judge thing connect to the police thing? through this whole conversation about where it's, I don't have any idea if he'll remember it. it. That's not the point. The point is to explain it. The point is to create a worldview. The point is to be the narrator of his world. I want to be the one that's there in his ear explaining, here's what you're seeing. Um, when uh, we used to do a lot of street evangelism when, when my family was young and uh, Almost, you know, very, very regularly. Uh, pretty confrontational street evangelism sometimes. And um, I asked Elijah for his fifth birthday. What do you want to do for your birthday? He said, I want to go to the porn shop. Uh, to me, that was a normal thing for a five-year-old to say. Because we used to go hold up signs outside of the porn shop. And it was, we'd do it as a whole church. We'd all go down there as families. It's really hard to walk past a bunch of Christian families to a den of iniquity. It's, it's a hard thing to do. And so he, that was an experience where, and people would ask me about that later. They'd say, are you sure you want to have children down there? And I, I would say, yes. My children are going to experience that part of the world at some point. Are they going to experience it with me in their ear, explaining what they're seeing, explaining what's happening, explaining what sin is, explaining what the world does? Or they're going to find it all on their own and have to figure out that narrative by themselves. I want to be there. I want, I want to be a part of that. I want to be the one that helps them understand what they're seeing in the world. And I think that's the point of Deuteronomy 6. I think that's where he's trying to get us. That we're the ones that are diligently teaching them what they're seeing about the world. That we're creating and shaping their worldview. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Another way to say it is like, you get to introduce your children to the world. Like, how, you know how great it is if you go you take one of the children out somewhere they've never been before, like take them fishing or take them out into the woods and show them stuff or, or take them to work and you know how excited the boys get and they get, you get them a little tape measure and a little safety vest and little goggles and they go sheet rock or pop like the first time and how, like you get to introduce the world of work your child like what a 
What a gift that is. And so many children aren't treated that way. And I think this is one of the, should be one of the inheritances of children of the church, is to have parents who take that view of your life, that, that they see it as their joy and their opportunity to hand you the world. Look at, this is what work is. This is how we feed ourselves. This is how we take care of mama and the family. This is how we, this is how we earn our bread. It's not a bad thing. It's not something to be despised or avoided or hated or whatever. This is, this is how we live. <clears throat> here's, the, here's, here's why I think this is really important. I think that you, brothers and sisters, <clears throat> let me say it this way. I, as you know, I'm very, very committed to the idea of urban Christian community. And, <clears throat> and I'm not going to belabor that point, but one of, the, one, of the, one of the effects of urban Christian communities is that every, every one of those communities is missional. Every one of the people in those communities is a missionary. I used to take exception to the word missionary. Because mm, in the circles I was in, it was kind of a new priest class. Like, it was a new specialty kind of person. I didn't like that notion. It never sat well with me. That missionaries were the special Christian people that went to other parts of the world and did gospel stuff. And I always felt like, well, what about here? Like, it's not any less important here. If you connect yourself to urban populations where people are, you realize very quick, like there's no shortage of need for the, the missionary mindset within, within America's urban centers. And, um, but here's one of the things about that. A, a lot of people, um, I don't know about a lot, but some of the people that we've worked with in the past especially coming out of Anabaptist worlds, where they grew up in school, they grew up in Sunday school, there was a real, you know, like, a real stable structure that was responsible for their upbringing. And a lot of that was not the home, it was outsourced. It was the teacher at the school, it was the Sunday school program. You know, you probably, uh, the, the common experience is that, you know, you probably had devotions with dad at the table, but it was kind of dry, and it was read a text, and then go on about your day, and it's probably done very faithfully, but that's kind of all it was, because the rest of the religious education was supposed to happen by the preachers in the church, by the Sunday school, and you're supposed to do you know, your Bible at, at school and class, and your teacher was there to teach you all this stuff about the world, and math, and science, and all this stuff. And, you know, that system has its own, own merits and reasons for why people do it. But what happens is that there's so much that's there that you don't realize when you step away from it. Like, like nobody's teaching your children Bible stories. They're not doing that at Sunday. I mean, I don't know. Nobody at Sunday school. But generally in our missional churches, they're not doing that at Sunday school. They don't have a teacher that's telling them to read their Bible today for 20 minutes in Bible class. If you don't teach them, they don't learn that. And it's easy when you move and life is so busy and there's so much happening and, and there's all this stuff and how are we going to make this work and there's people around and hey, we came here for ministry, right? So let's get involved in ministry. And you can go years that way sometimes and like your 13-year-old doesn't know Noah built the ark because nobody stopped to have Bible story time. 
And you have to realize, you have to stop and take stock and say, hey, we've got to teach them. There's no outsource option here. Like, we moved away from that. We're in this missional setting. We have to take responsibility. If we don't put it in them, they don't get it. And that's an important thing to remember. And, you know, we had an Eastern family come, and I, I had to sit them down at a certain point. I was like, hey, you, listen, there's no Sunday school anymore. It's on you. Like, you got, you got these little children. Are you teaching them? Are you, are you doing the stuff that you used to do when you went to Sunday school, when you went to Bible class? Are you putting that in there? So if you're not, nobody is. And that's an important thing to remember. Deuteronomy 6 is a good reminder. All right. <coughs> Excuse me. Let's move on a little bit. I want to look at why this, why this is such an important issue. Um, I'm going to do it. Let's, let's look at Titus chapter 1. And, and this is the, the requirements for a bishop. Uh, in verse 5, Titus 1, 5. For this reason I left you in Crete that you would set in order but remains and appoint elders in every city, as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of, the King James says, dissipation or rebellion. Who will, uh, anybody have a non-King James? What's, what's it say, not in King James? Children of believers and not over the charge of debauchery and insubordination. Debauchery and what? Insubordination. Insubordination. I'm going to, here's a bonus. Uh, how, how many of you use a digital Bible? Anybody use Bible software for anything? Do you know literal word? Have you found this? Literal word, I'm going to introduce you to it real quick. It's my favorite thing to use, especially for study. Um, it's super, super slick. I'll flip this around real quick. I happen to have highlighted these two words here. Literal word is a, I think it's an NASB basic translation. It's in, in both Greek and Hebrew. Um, it's the same on a phone. This is just on a tablet version. Right up here, there's an alpha for Greek. And all the underlined words it has, it, it has a definition for. So if I pull up, this is dissipation in King James. That's esotia. Um, for, for friends, dissipation is this word. Asotia, sozo is save, to save. So the A is not. This. So like in root etymology, this is a little bit different, but in root etymology, it comes from not and saved. It, it's a little more complicated word than that. That's the roots. So here, it pulls up this word, and this is the beautiful feature. So you can copy and do notes, and it'll tell you. It always links to the Septuagintal use of that word, which is super nice. So you can pull up where that word is in the Old Testament Septuagint. It'll give you the links there. And also, um, at the top here, it says this word is found in three verses. Just with one click, that's the same as an Englishman's concordance. Now I've looked up esotia, and these are the three instances. So now I can read, because that word dissipation in the King James is kind of a funny word, right? Like, what's dissipation? Here, now I can read this same word was translated in Ephesians 5.18. There's three instances. Be not drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. Excess is what, is what the King James says. But be filled with the Spirit. So that's the same word. Namely, if any man is above reproach, oh, this is the one we're reading, Titus, not accused of dissipation. And in 1 Peter, 
In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them under the same excess of dissipation. Again, in King James, that's riot, excess of riot. So we contextualize this word right that quick with this one. This is a super shortcut to doing, doing Greek word studies without having to know Greek. It's a fantastic app. I recommend it all the time. Now, back to the point. <coughs> As you probably know, um, that follows the way we've staked our flag on being very serious about this particular text in regards to how we do church administration and church leadership and church ministry. And I'm not, I'm not trying to make that case here, but it comes from this passage. These words in both Titus and Timothy are connected to to men who have successfully reared their children. And, and the reason that that matters to me as a church planter and to me as a father, let, let me explain it this way. Let me explain my, my own like, experience with fatherhood in the ministry. When I was young, you know, I started my first church when I was in my early 20s, <clears throat> far too young, but we were there on our own. We didn't have anything to do, so we jumped right in. It's that radical thing, right? So... Um, and we had, <coughs> we were all a bunch of young zealots. And, you know, we were out street preaching all the time. And people would come around sometimes, and we'd finally get an older family. They'd travel through, and they'd be like, hey, what's this all going on here? This is pretty neat. And they'd stick around for a while. And then they'd say, hey, I think we're going to go somewhere else. And we're like, where, why, why are you going? But, you know, like how things are going. No, we love it. It's great. So much ministry. It's active, exciting, everything. But there's no older families here. And by the time the third older family told us that, we were like, well, if one of you older families would stick around, there'd be some older families for the older families when the older families come around. But whatever, it didn't happen. When, at that point in my life, like, youth was my problem. I was so young, I was trying to do way more than I had capacity to do. And everybody knew that. I knew it, everybody knew it. It's a super young guy. My children were just, you know, boom, 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 boom. And, um, and, I saw where the Bible says, if any man desires the office of bishop, he desires a good thing. And I said, I desire that. I, God says it's a good thing. I want to be a bishop someday. And I set my heart after these texts. I want to know what this is. I want to understand it. And I want to perform it. I want to do it. I want to learn it. I want to be that. So that if God has that for me in the future, I can walk in that ministry. Prepared and have spent a life dedicating myself to being ready for that. If, I can, if God has that for me. And so, <clears throat> all those years when I was preaching and ministering and trying to do church work and stuff, I always looked at these texts as like hurdles. Like, I felt like I was exercising, right? You know, I'm running in ministry, I'm running my church work, and there's that faithful children. I'm trying to jump, well, I can't quite get over it yet. And I keep running, and I come back up to it again, and ah, I still can't get over that thing. One of these days, I'm going to be able to jump that hurdle. One of these days, I'm going to be able to jump that hurdle. I had a lot of different life experiences that happened, a lot of failures, a lot of things happened. And, um, and I got to thinking about these things and my view of them and how I had interacted with these things for so many years. And God began to change my mind about it. And what I began to see is that there was an entirely different way to approach this than I had been. And what I began to see is that I felt like God was... He had laid these things out. He had laid these requirements out as a way to, to tell me and people like me 
now is not the time for you to do that. Here's what you're supposed to be doing. If you want to do that, that's great. But here's what you're supposed to do now. And I began to see these requirements as a, as a, as a gift, as a protection from God. Like, what I felt like he was saying in these requirements is like, listen, son, that's not your job right now. You have a job, a very important job to do. And I'll teach you how to do that other stuff. But I'm only going to teach you to do it by doing this well. What your job is right now is to be a father. I want you to be a father. Because you're never going to get there if you don't start here. And the more that you have your eyes on that instead of this, the less likely you are to do this well. And I watched this. I experienced this. I experienced some really, really dynamic, wonderful men fail with their families for about a dozen years. Just brother after brother after brother that I loved, admired, respected, heeded to, and shipwreck of their family, and shipwreck, and shipwreck, and shipwreck, and shipwreck. And I finally said, okay, I get it. Like, I don't know what's going wrong with those guys, but something's going wrong. It doesn't work. It, whatever's ha whatever we've been doing in our circles, it doesn't work. I don't want to do that. So perk up my ears. Like, I'm listening. Tell me. Like, what am I supposed to do? And what was happening, and I think, my view of that is that we had men who were trying to run a business and trying to have a family and trying to raise the church. And what, what usually happens in that case is that all of those occupations get about a third of the man. What happens very often is that two of those <coughs> occupations get a whole man and one of those occupations gets no man. That's, that's usually what happens. You either have a minister who's good at his ministry and good at his business and horrible at his family, or he's good at his family and good at his business or horrible at his ministry, or some combination of that. The term elders are old men. The old men. That's, that's literally what that word means. It, we could write it in English, the old men. And it's, it's there for a reason. And this issue right here was a defining issue for me these descriptions of faithful children, this, this NASB says having children who believe, it's technopistos, like children with, of the faith. <coughs> Excuse me. It means Christian children. There's not another way to take this. And they're not riotous, they're not rebellious. This word rebellion is interesting too, uh, I looked it up. It's, this, it's, a, it's a word for prodigal, not prodigal. Like, they haven't run off and done their own thing and are off in the world instead of where they should be in the church. They're not under rule. They're, not, they're lawless. Look at, um, let's look at that Timothy passage. Uh, it's Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 3. In verse 3 it says, <coughs> now let me back up. Um, this is the one. If, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer or bishop, it's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who, uh, who manages his own household well, 
keeping his children under control with all dignity. Verse 5. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? It's a rhetorical statement. The answer is, he won't. That's the rhetorical answer to the rhetorical question. If a man doesn't know how to take care of his household well, he will not be able to take care of the church of God. That, that verse, in the context of this, has made it clear to me that God has a way and a place to train ministers for the church. It's raising children. I, 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 my own ordination is as a church planter. It's an apostolic ministry. And apostolic ministry is great for people without families. In fact, I'm kind of hindered in my apostolic ministry by having a family. There's tons of stuff happening back home right now with my family. And I'm, I'm out here doing church stuff. That's not super convenient. Uh, it, 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 there's lots of opportunity and lots of room for men who don't have families to do important, meaningful work for the church. But there's one thing that trains bishops. There's one way that elders are brought up. There's a seminary program to bring, bring elders into the church, and it's raising children. Now, here's what I've learned about that. Since I began to embrace this as a protection instead of a hurdle, what I've realized in raising children, I'm just starting to get to the place where I have adult children. I'm just starting to the place where I've had a few grandchildren. And, and what I thought along the way was that when, my, when, my, when they were wee ones, when they were little, the hard stuff is like getting them to obey. Like, you guys are doing fantastic. All you children are wonderful. Look at how well everybody's sitting. Like, this is hard stuff when they're all little. Especially when you've got, you know, Seven, six, four, three, two, baby. Like, it's hard to get order and obedience and discipline and make sure that stuff is happening and stuff doesn't get thrown apart and people aren't fighting and stuff gets picked up. And life is just crazy. It's tough, especially your mamas. It's tough. It's tough. I know it's tough. It's really hard stuff. It's okay that it's hard. It's a hard season of life. I thought when we got over that hump that the rest was going to be like downhill. You just teach them how to obey. Teach them to have order. Teach them to read their Bibles. Teach them their school. And then they'll take off and fly. It's not that way. It doesn't get easier. It just gets different. And you know, you, some of your children are getting old enough now that it changes. Now you're not trying to get them to pick up the supper table and not throw stuff on the floor. Now you're, now you're having to create a new kind of relationship. Now you're having to become friends and tend to heart and tend to soul and start talking about things and start making connections that are a whole different thing than the little ones. And that, that grows. And then you have to start letting go and you have to start teaching them to make decisions on their own and letting them exercise that, that, that authority of their own life and, and make some missteps and be there to help and guide and how much do you guide and how much do you let go and how much do you let them decide for themselves and how much do you shepherd them. Like all that stuff is really a dynamic evaluation day by day, child by child. It's not less, it's just different. And then they have, then they, then they start wanting to get married. 
And then you got to work through all that kind of stuff. And that sounded a lot easier until I started trying to do it. And then they start having their own children, and then they want to talk to grandma and grandpa, and they want to have questions like, what, do you, what did you guys do, and this, and that, and this. It doesn't ever go away. There's not, and I don't want it to. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying the, the workload doesn't decrease. It never changes. Like Parenting is the lifestyle. That's what we do. From now forever, for the rest of your days, you get to be mom and pop. You get to be mommy and daddy. You get to be this. It, it's wonderful. It's the best stuff of life. It doesn't go away. It's the lifelong occupation. And it's the best parts of it. But it doesn't get less. It just changes. Okay, so what am I talking about? Titus and Timothy. My point in all that is that what I have realized now, now that I'm just starting to to discover these later facets of, of raising children, is that there are skills buried in these lessons. There are skills in raising children at this, this phase of life, of getting them married and, help, and helping them start their own families and seeing them off and helping them navigate church issues and helping them navigate getting born again and when we get baptized and all this stuff. There are lessons in that that are necessary for the bishopric. They're necessary for the ministry. Because what you have to do when you come in to take care of the church of God is that you have to assess, where is this person? What do they need? Where's their level of maturity? What's the best way to help them? How do I diagnose the issues that are happening? How do I, ha- how do I give them enough space to grow and enough control to help? All of these same skills that you learn later with your children, you also need in the church. They cross right over. And, and I've seen so many young men in the ministry that are still working with that young child phase, and they don't know how to bury their, their experience in the church. They don't know how to bury their ministry. They don't know how to meet a different kind of need. They only have one size fits all. They only know how to raise little children. They know how to spank. They know how to say no. They know how to say stop it. They know how to say be quiet. They know how to say sit still. They know how to say do what you're told. That's all they got. And that's not a good way to raise the church. It's not how that's supposed to work. You're supposed to have a whole different set of tools for how to take care of God's children in the church than just those things. And I've seen it time and time and time and time again. It's not thoroughly equipped. It's not, been, it's not gone through the proper training. So that's why this stuff matters. It matters for not just our families, but also for the church. What time do we start? If I start seeing people yawn, I'll start. <laughs> okay, I'm still. <laughs> I'm, this is still my introduction. <laughs> Um, the other reason that you should rightly feel reluctant to speak about making disciples in the home is that there's no formulas. There's no answer. I, <coughs> I want to have a round table. I want to talk about like real issues and some real stuff and real questions. I'm going to practice all that by saying there's not really answers to a lot of questions. I'm sorry. I'll answer them if I can. 
but some things you just have to figure out. And and I've I've read the books. Listen, the books are junk. The books are a kind of junk. The books are. I also think you should read them. The books are fantastic. They just aren't what they claim to be. They aren't the one size fits all. They're not the answer to your family. They're not the answer to raising godly children. They're not the answer to always having the right answer. They're not the answer for how to always make sure that your children do what you want them to do. They're not the answer for any of the things that they claim to be the answers for. They're, they might, they have some, there are some books that have some really good ideas and techniques and they might help with some of your families and some of your children, they might. And they're worth reading just to think about those things. But you, there's no manual. There's no, there's no secret to ten ways to raise godly children. There's no four steps to getting everything you want out of your family. There's no, if you do these seven things, I promise you all your children will be happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise. Like, they're just, it's not there. And here's why. Because every, every family is different. Every marriage is different. Every person is different. Every child is different. And not only is every child different, every child is different every year of its life. And, and, and we have to get away from, again, read the books. They're good, stimulating things to consider. I think that we should do that. I think if, if we're serious about parenting, we should read people's ideas about it and see what we can glean and learn from it. I'm not saying don't read the books. I'm saying what we need to see is that this is, this is a person that's given into your care and your trust. God set you, you in particular, over this soul and this person. And you should love that person well. You should know that person well. You should be able to pick that person out of a crowd. You should know what's special about that person. You should know what's unique about that person. And just like... Just like in a marriage, like when you, when the whole, if you think of a marriage in terms of, of control or conformity or output or productivity, you've already lost. Like that doesn't, that's no way to have a relationship. That I can't imagine being in a relationship like that. I, I mean, I can. It's called like corporate life. Like it's called work. Like it's like a cog in a corporate machine. That's what that is. That's not family. That's not life. That's not. That's not relationship. That's machinery. Families aren't machinery. They're people. And, and what we have as an opportunity as parents is that person in our hands. And it's such a wonderful and a holy and a precious thing to have access to somebody's life that way. So there's not a formula and there's no pat answers. What we have to be instead is an expert on each person. I want to be, as a father, I want to be the expert on each of my children. I know, I know each of them. I know their personalities. I know what makes them tick. I know what they like. I know what they don't like. I know, <coughs> I know how they are. I know how to speak to them when they're hurting. I know how to, I know how to, and it's not that I don't mess up. I mess up just like I do in my relationship with my wife. Like, I mess up. That's not, a, that's not the problem. The, the goal is not to not mess up. You're, you're not supposed to be a perfect parent. You're just supposed to be engaged in that relationship with that person. 
And that, that's, you know, there's some <coughs> different things about that. That's, that's a little bit of a different task if you have 12 children than if you have two. Like, there's different ways that you have to, different things that you have to employ to do that well in a different spectrum. But the goal is the same. This person is my person. It's part my wife, she's part my wife and part me and all her. And I want to know her and love her and cherish her and teach her and train her and shepherd her and make her strong and ready to be in the world, ready to serve the kingdom. It's a highly individualized plan. It's like um, it's like spiritual genetics, right? It's like this hyper-individualized approach to parenting that you know them. There's one other thing that I want to say <clears throat> before I go on too far from this and stray from my introduction is that I also don't want to over-spiritualize parenting. Like I don't want to I don't want to use guilt or shame. I don't want to try to make anybody, anybody anywhere feel bad. I don't want to, like, if you're not doing it this way, you're not doing it right. I, I'm sure I'll say things that apply to my family just by way of experience and things we've done. This no pat answers thing, I mean it. I mean it with the things I'm saying, too. I'm a book right now. Like I'm just sharing ideas of things that I've experienced and what I've come across in, in raising children for these 20-some years. And <coughs> all of those experiences are very key to who I am as a person, to who their mother is as a woman, who our experiences, our personality, our strengths and gifts and abilities, our children and their personalities. That stuff all has to be taken... What, when I say I don't want to over-spiritualize is that a lot of the work of parenting is just getting in the trench and doing it. And feeling like you're not doing it quite right and doing it anyhow. And feeling like you messed up and keep doing it. And feeling like you're spun out and you don't know what you're supposed to do and keep moving forward and like not going away. It's like, you know, just like your marriage. Like, sometimes marriage is the best thing on earth, and sometimes it's really hard. And you've got to just keep going. And that's the, that's the stuff. The real stuff is when it's not easy. The real stuff is when it's not fun. The real stuff is when you don't know what to do. And lean in there in those places. And I don't want to just, like, if we pray hard enough, or if we have family devotions enough, or if we whatever enough, then every, that's just another form of the pat answer. Most of parenting is just being there every day. Just like most of your marriage. Most of your marriage is mundane. Most of your marriage is paying bills and making food and changing diapers and taking out the trash and cleaning the kitchen. That's most of marriage. So how do you make most of marriage fun? Well, you enjoy each other in the, the monotonous, dumb stuff of life. Like you create a relationship where it's fun to take out the trash. It's not always fun to take out the trash. But if you can create a relationship where you enjoy being with each other, where you do dumb stuff that has to be done so you can live, that's wonderful. Because maximizing those places is where you get the most return. If you can enjoy mundane things as a family, enjoy mundane things as a couple, as a married couple, you've maximized your life because it's what most of life is. 
Most of life isn't vaca vacation and anniversaries and supper at the Italian restaurant. That stuff's really nice. It's super fun. It's great. And it's rare. And it's probably super fun and great because it's rare. But if you can figure out how to make daily life enjoyable, then you've, you've, you've just made so much of your life better. And so when you get to a place as a family where you're grading on each other and the day-to-day -day life, and I, I know this place well, when just like daily life is a grind and everybody's at each other and nothing's working smoothly and it's mopey and pulling people, pulling teeth to get people to do stuff. That's the opposite, right? That makes most of life miserable because most of life is the mundane stuff. So focus on those places. Make normal life good. Make mundane life well. And you can have a mostly happy life. It's just a little key, right? So it doesn't have to be hyper-spiritual. It's not about, you know, I, I don't want to minimize the spiritual stuff. This is a spiritual endeavor we're putting on. But when I was when I was young, right, it was like I gotta like be on my knees and crying out to God for my children every night, or I'm letting them down and they're gonna go to hell and on and on and on. And I got I felt like I always had to muster up this like something to get them through. And that's not really what it is. I found it's just not. It that's like the Italian restaurant. That's like the anniversary. There's time and a place for that stuff. Sometimes you've got to get on your knees and cry about your children. That's, it just happens. But that's not what it's supposed to be like all the time. What it's supposed to be all the time is just living life together and being a family and enjoying each other's company and really liking the people that you live with. So, so I don't want to over-spiritualize. I want to I have a practical way to live that actually helps our whole life. Okay. Here's my steps to raising children. I laid this out just because it's a way to think about development. Step one is the baby. Here's why. I'm, here's what I'm talking about. This. Let me back up. It's weird to me that it takes so long to raise humans. It's kind of novel. Like, there aren't many animals that it takes more than a decade to rear and to make capable of living on their own. But we're spending between 15 and 20 years to create functional adult humans. Either that's an anomaly, or it's a design feature. If it's a design feature, then there's a long slow process of developing humans. And, and that long, slow process has a lot of components. And learning, <coughs> learning to look for, analyze, and see, and evaluate, where is this person? Where are they? Because age is a useful indicator, but it's just a useful indicator, because you know, one 15-year-old is is more like another 13-year-old or more like another 20-year-old. They, they, all that stuff varies. 
to be able to see and assess where is this child, who, what stage is that, what are they doing, what are they, what are the normal developmental stages, you know, like medically, you know, as family practice, you know the developmental stages, they're supposed to be doing this by this age, they're supposed to be rolling over by here, they should be babbling, they should have this many words by this age, there's these developmental milestones and steps that go through life. And in a big sense, the way of raising children, like the, this is the helpless phase, right? That child can't do nothing for nothing. Can't even roll over. Like, completely helpless. And that's how we enter the world. So you come here, like, no capacity of your own. Can't even feed yourself. Literally have to be held, changed. That's an incredibly vulnerable state. Why should it be so? I mean, there's animals that are born that walk the day they're born. you know, they get up and they walk and they also nurse and do all the baby stuff, but they're doing it from their feet. Ours don't. Well, they got these giant heads for one. With big brains, so that's something. But <coughs> that vulnerability isn't an accident. That vulnerability creates a connection. So much stuff that I love, I love child and infant development. It's fascinating stuff to me. Neonatal development is too, but but like the things that that baby is learning right now, like as it looks at its mother's eyes, as it sits and nurses and looks at mama, emulates smiles and coos and sounds and cries. How about this? How does an infant learn language? Can you imagine like, it's not like dropping me off in Tokyo and I gotta figure out how to learn Japanese. It's not like, oh, I call this paper, what do you call it? There's no paper. There's no original language to work from. There's non, no language to language. And there's no primer, there's no teaching, there's no instruction. They just hear stuff happening around them and start to make connections. And oh, every time they say that, there's that. That's how, that's how brilliant those little defenseless creatures are. So all that time spent thinking means it can't do anything else. So that's you, like you get to be that. You get to be everything for the child. It's completely vulnerable, completely defenseless, completely useless in the world, and everything comes from mom and papa. Everything comes from outside. So there's all of this right, like super innate bonding stuff that happens. It's brilliant, it's beautiful, it's wonderful. That's why babies are cute. So you establish the relationship that I meet your needs, I answer your cry, I clean you, I sustain you, I love you, I protect you, I provide for you, I'm everything for you. And then the rest of life from that is like getting farther and further away from that initial like, I need you for everything, now I need you for a little less, and a little less, and I do a little more on my own, and a little more on my own, until I can do things on my own. That's the developmental art. <coughs> Step two, they learn to navigate the world, walk and talk and and be a creature that's at play here now. And that's, you know, fun and laughter and toddlers and, you know, falling and scraped knees and all that super fun stuff. It's the interaction in the world, becoming a piece of the world. And then we have training, right? So we go from walking and talking, then we go to training. Now it's, now it's not just a feature that exists in the world, but now you have things to do, and things to be, and now you need to, you know, you need to start 
learning how to read and learning how to and inquisitiveness and wanting to understand more and more things around and asking questions and experiencing things in the world but being trained like here's what we do here's what we don't do <coughs> so much of this childhood phase is just training training um I like the idea of training, especially for, for toddlers and young children. Like, training like you train for sports. You know, like, how, how should we be in the world, right? Like, that's training. You should do this, you shouldn't do that. This is what will work well, this will not work, will not work well. If you start training for the Olympics when you're five, like, you're out on the ice every day. You're practicing your maneuvers. That's that phase of practicing life. Like, here's why, here's why, why training the little ones matter. How, what does it mean to learn when you're at that, like, fundamental developmental age of, say, three to six, <coughs> to learn when mom and papa say no, it means no. That's not just about not doing something because it's inconvenient. That's about learning that there are boundaries in the world. It's about learning that some things are no, that there has to be restraint, that there has to be a control imposed. There's some things that you're going to want to do in the world that you're not supposed to do. It's not about getting them to pick stuff up. It's learning the world. This stuff is like all, it's all prototyped. It's all little tiny versions of gigantic things about the world. And, and I, I wonder, I don't know how necessary it is, but it is for me. There's something, like when I train my little three-year-old to pick up the toys, I need the toys picked up, right? We, we need to pick up the toys, we can't have a mess. But I could pick them up much quicker myself. Or one of the other children could pick them up much quicker. Why do I have? Why do I go through the time and the bother to take the three-year-old and sit on the floor next to him and take five times longer to pick up the toys? It's not the toys aren't the issue. The child is the issue. What what are, what are we learning about the world? I'm responsible for this. I did this. I fixed this. I made this a mess. I make it clean. It's not about the toys. It's about the child. And the more that we can focus on that kind of, at least somewhere in the background, you know, sometimes you just want to pick up the toys and it's not, it's not so grand. But to have a principle behind what we're doing, to at least have a point of reflection where it feels, so many of my sisters are really like, our women, they get wore out. Because life is long and hard and diapers stink and dishes never stop and laundry's always going and somebody's always crying. It's exhausting. And I think it helps. What, what, we, what, what has helped Erica and what I try to always encourage my sisters by is that this isn't toys. It's not laundry. It's not diapers. It's like the universe. And I don't... I'm not trying to just manipulate women to get them to do all the work. I mean that from a, from a holy perspective, the diapers aren't about diapers. They're about being somebody's everything. They're about the whole world. 
They're about your place being the biggest looming thing in a person's life because that's what that person needs. You're the needed piece. I, I am too. I'm not exonerating fathers from this stuff. Parents, the, the changing of the diapers, the washing of the dishes, the doing of the laundry, the sweeping of the floor, the doing of the school, the fights and the, and the discipline and the, all the stuff that's so exhausting in the aggregate, if you can step back for a minute, it means way more than it looks like on the surface. It really means shaping the world for a few people. And if you can learn how to do that with grace, and if you can learn to see, if we can learn, all of us can learn to see that place that we have in those lives as something like literally holy. I think about like the ministration of the temple. Can you imagine like how much like just grueling work there is in the Passover? Can you imagine being a priest at the Passover and literally just slaughtering animals all day and blood and guts and gross and just, you'd wear yourself out after a day and how easy it would be to just feel like you just had a gross job pulling guts out of animals all day. But that's not really what it was. What it really was was the ministration of the temple. What it really was was the Day of Atonement. What it really was was the setting right of God's people with him. It was really much, much more than what it looked like on the surface. And you can see easily how you can get caught in the priest craft instead of the priesthood. And you can easily get lost in parent craft and miss parenthood. That's pretty big picture stuff. But I think it helps from time to time to get back to that place as parents with God and like learn to have gratitude for the opportunity. Learn to lean into the doldrums. Learn to see the holy thing behind what's happening and to not miss it. I, I'm shocked until I actually really thought about it. I'm shocked that after the miracle of the loaves and the fishes, they get in the boat and they leave, and he starts talking to them about the letter of the Pharisees, and it says that they neglected, they, they, they wist not, they forgot the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. How did they get the miracle of the loaves and the fishes? That little boy walks up with five loaves and two fishes, and God feeds, Jesus feeds 5,000 people just the day before, they literally had to carry. They were the ones that were talking to Jesus and saying, there's nothing here. We send the people away. There's no food. You give them to eat. We don't have any that much money. We don't even have that much time to put that together. All there is is this little boy and his five loaves and his two fishes. And he says, set the people down. And then here's the key. Here's the key to why they forgot. Set the people down. Jesus takes his loaves and fishes and the 12 disciples. There's thousands of people here. We just had Bible school. We fed like, I don't know, 50 people three times a day. It's a stupid amount of work. Feeding 50 people three times a day. Thousands of people. And so the 12 disciples, they huddle together and they're like, okay, you get that ass, I'll get that section, you get that section. 
They run out there. Everybody sit down. Hey, no, no, you get over here. Come sit down. You guys over there, sit in that group. Here's 50. One, two, three, four. You got seven more people. Get over there. All this hustle and bustle and organization. And now, okay, well, there's food up there. Now I got to run up there. I grab a basket of food. I run after these people. We got to start at the back, work our way forward. Oh, where's all this happening? Oh, you drop some. Now what? All this, blah, 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 blah. Hustle, 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 bustle. By the time they're done, you're just tired. You're just wore out from a day of work. Serving people. And then you stop to think about where it came from. And that's why, even though, it's funny, 12 baskets. Why 12 baskets? The same guys that just told Jesus we don't have enough bread had to each carry a basket of bread out. Jesus is ironic. But that's why, that's why they missed it. And the lesson is that it's easy to miss it. You know, so many, so many older people, when you talk to them, the, the regrets that so many people have is that they missed it. I desperately don't want to miss it. You know what is important to me is to at least a few times a week to just be alone for a minute does it happen a lot? But be alone for a minute and say, I love living my life. Sometimes things are ugly. We have had a lot of difficulties this last year. But even in our difficulties, most times, when I get alone for a minute, I thank God because I love my life. And that's remembering the miracle. Because I'm just, I'm, I'm a skinhead. I'm a trash I'm a broken, messy, ugly, violent, horrible person. You don't know me. I know me. And I get to live, I live like an enchanted life. I live like a fairy tale. My, my grandchildren fight with my baby. Like we live in the same house. I get to hold them all the time. Like my life is full of so much good. And it, it, I hate the idea that you could get so busy, you miss it. You don't, don't make this, that principle of the mundane, man, it's like, you gotta figure out how to make the day matter. Make it meaningful. Back to, back to, don't want to over-spiritualize this. I don't want, I don't feel bad when it's just a hard day and you're sick of taking care of children and you're ready for everybody to go to bed and you just want some quiet time. You don't have to feel bad about that. It happens. But you also need to remember why you're there and why they're there and what life really is about and the miracles that are happening day to day in the lives that we live. I think we'll stop there. Thank you.